this topic of character to finish tonight. Um, I just want you to know ahead of time for you guys with kids, I'll keep this message shorter than the previous ones. Um, But I just want to start out with a premise as we approach this, and that is God is so much more gracious than we could ever give Him credit for. God is so much more gracious than we could ever wrap our minds around. Now, I don't know if you have to err on one side, but I've always felt if I was going to err on one side of grace or whatever the opposite of that would be, I want to err on the side of grace. I've tasted erring on the other side. And frankly, I don't think that too many people are going to get to heaven and stand before Jesus and ever hear the words, how could you have ever thought that I was that gracious? How could you have ever represented me that gracious before people? That's ridiculous. You It's never going to happen. But I promise you, there will be a lot of people that hear the opposite of that. One of the lines of a classic hymn that I just absolutely hate, I abhor it. I went nuts one day when we were singing it in our church. I felt bad for our worship leader. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness light. We are not debtors to grace. You need to get that. Grace cancels out debt. That's what grace is. Colossians chapter 2. That grace through the gospel took that debt and nailed it to a tree and made it an open spectacle for all to see. So I'm not a debtor. We are not debtors to grace. I've never understood. Every time that hymn is sung, that's the line when everybody's hands go up. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. You mean I get to be a part of this? I get to be a part of this salvation? Yay for me. No, that's not the way it works. We are not debtors to grace. We need to get that through our minds as we approach this idea of character. Because if we are debtors to grace, then character just is a deposit or a payment back of that debt. And that's not gospel-centered character building. So we're going to approach this final message and we're going to hit the daunting list of character um, that Peter lays out in verses 5-8. through And I preach these things in the order that I did before getting to the list for a couple of reasons. I wanted to avoid two things. One was justifying ourselves through keeping of a list. Our justification comes from the fact that we were declared righteous in the sight of God, though we try to continue to add to that list. Even though we know this truth, we know that that's right, we bring so many things that, God, that's so great that you've declared me righteous. Thank you for that. But check this out. Here's some merit of my own that I'm going to add. And man, we do it all the time. In in church planting world, you see so many church planters and pastors whose identity is wrapped up in the size of their church, the production of certain ministries. And I know I'm justified by you, Jesus, and how good of a pastor I am. So I want to avoid that. And I also want to avoid anybody feeling condemned for not being able to keep a list that can only be kept by Jesus. That's why I didn't want to jump right to the list. One of the things that I've realized, it was unfortunately new to me 
only over recent years, is that condemnation does not draw anybody closer to Jesus. I used to be somebody that, that thought if you just felt miserable enough, then Jesus was bound to be closer. Condemnation is not from Jesus, so therefore condemnation does not draw people closer to Jesus. So lists aren't bad, but we're going to be looking at a list of eight characters, just pop, 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 all presented in a row. And legalists love to jump to lists. If we, if we took that kind of approach and just hit those virtues and said, here's a list, we'll just give you the list, and we'll take four sessions on how you can be the Christian that keeps this list, it would probably actually produce more immediate change in people, to be honest. It would probably produce more of what might have the appearance of fruit, because lists are something where I can gauge... And then I could check things off to see where I'm at with the thing that I gauge. I used to work for a company called Franklin Covey. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of them. But, but they make these wonderful planners that we used to have before we all had iPads. And, and the most beautiful thing on the planner, if you're tracking with me, was when you got to check something off the task list, right? Wasn't that just gorgeous? Like, oh, day was a success. Check, check check and if you're just wicked OCD like me if there was that thing unchecked on the bottom of the list they was a failure of course and I, I think that we can approach gospel Christianity like this because lists can gauge um, I saw this at a conference I was at it a couple months ago I had some of the best gospel centered teaching in the world from some of the best gospel centered teachers in the world but one message stood out because it was pure old school condemnation and legalism and ended up being the message that everybody was tweeting, retweeting, blogging, emailing, you name it, that's the message that got out there. And I remember leaving that message feeling like garbage. Here's what I felt like. I, I feel like garbage. I feel like I'm not doing enough. I feel like I need to do more. I feel like I need to accomplish this that that guy just told me I needed to do in order to be loved rightly by Jesus. And I started to realize that that feeling that I felt was an old familiar friend. And I used to actually like feeling that way. I used to download sermons that would make me feel, or if I was quoting a book, I'd be like, oh, that's the quote that really makes you feel like garbage. You know, that's the one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight. Because it made me feel like I had something to do. And I want to show you guys just a quick video clip. You might have seen it where it kind of shows that dichotomy between just that that hate-mongering kind of preaching and just the beauty of gospel preaching. It's only like three minutes, but he says it way better than I can, so I'll just let him do it. People teach fear-mongering when they're getting the characters. It works. It can make you leave here and do something quicker to change something that needs to be changed. I read a quote recently that really summed up a lot of what God has been doing in my heart as I've tried to break free from that kind of Christianity. He says, if your awesome and powerful message consists more of what you should do for Christ than what Christ has done for you, start over. I love that. The quote kind of describes my tension and my multi-year love affair with lists in Scripture. Because it's easier for me to stand up here and preach to you what you should do 
than it is to actually stand up and have a grasp and an understanding of the gospel and preach in a relevant way about what Christ has done. Because it makes you go out of here and feel like you've got something to do. So we need to remember that this list stuff, the stuff that we should do and shouldn't do, it needs to be rooted in a description of what Christ has already done. He has already declared you righteous by the merit of what He has done. He has given us equal standing, as we saw in verse 1, on the merit of what He has done. He has given us all we need for life and godliness, according to verse 3, meaning everything in this list and beyond it on the merit of what He has done. And it's important to keep that in mind any time you approach a list. As, as Tully Chidvigian has once said, every time... There's a list of to-dos in Scripture. It's always rooted in what Christ has to done. You got that? Anytime there's a list of to-dos in Scripture, it's always rooted in what Christ has to done. One of the things that we tell our people on a regular basis is that every imperative in the Bible needs to be rooted in an indicative of the Gospel. Anytime you're telling people, you need to go and do this, it needs to be rooted in what Christ has done. You see it most beautifully if you look through the book of Ephesians. There's three chapters where Paul doesn't tell you to do anything. All he does is he starts with this beautiful hymn about how Jesus loved us before the foundation of the world. And then he tells you, hey, you brought nothing to the equation other than wrath, and Jesus brought everything to the equation like grace and love brought you back to the dead. And then he just goes on to show you how you who are separate from him were made one through the cross. And that's the first three chapters. And he doesn't tell you to do anything. And then once he finally in chapter 4 begins to move towards imperatives, it's been so firmly rooted in the indicatives of what Christ has done. And you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where it talks about fleeing from sexual immorality and it gives this big list of all these things that we ought to abstain from. And he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were clean, you were regenerated, you are sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he roots that in what Christ has already done. So it's important to lay the foundation before approaching this list of character. But with that in mind... Let's go ahead and jump into it. In verse 5, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to to supplement your faith with virtue. So, the first one is to add to your faith, which we looked at last session, virtue. And virtue is kind of an odd word today, um, both in modern vernacular and biblical. It's not really a term that we throw around a lot. It's a, it's a term that's kind of lost its meaning a little bit as time has gone on. A hundred years ago, it wasn't all that uncommon to talk about somebody and say that they were virtuous. And the people that were talking to you would know what you meant because it was a word that was thrown around pretty regularly. But this is why translators need to take into account not only the word that they're translating, but the etymology of the language that they're translating it into. So it might actually be time for 
when a future translation of the ESV or whatever Bible you use comes out to do away with this word or do something a little bit different with this word because I think it's one of those rare instances where we've actually just taken a term and we've carried it over from the King James even though it's not exactly what's best in the understanding or interpretation because people don't commonly talk about virtue any longer and that's the point of a translation is so that you can understand what the Bible is talking about in your language and it's not helped by the fact that it's kind of an odd word biblically. I mean, it's just not a term that's used very often. And when it is used, it can use so many different things depending on the context. I've studied each of its usages, and it can be translated as ability, efficiency, moral worth, or power based on the context. It's so pretty wide-ranging, right? I would say that those terms are, are some pretty broad terms. As I studied all the usages of this term, it seemed like the one that fit best with what we're using right here is in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in Proverbs 31, where it talks about the virtuous woman. It's the same word, Proverbs 31.10, where it is translated as an excellent wife who can find her. And sorry to you brothers, but I've answered that question, and she's home watching our kids right now and she couldn't make it so you could have been like wow i met lemuel's answer to that question but those of you that were on the women's retreat you got the opportunity men sorry you missed out but the context is fitting because if you read the rest of proverbs 31 it's talking about a woman who's striving for moral excellence a woman of excellent moral fiber if you will and what a beautiful term to have listed right after faith. So you put it all together and you're saying, add to your faith a striving after excellence. So just like when the wife reads Proverbs 31 and she says, I want to be the excellent wife. When that question is asked, an excellent woman, who can find her? I want to be the answer to that question. Jonathan Edwards said that actually in one of his resolutions, not wife. He said, when the, when the Proverbs writer says, uh, an upright man, who can find him? He said, live my life in such a way that I can be an answer to this question. God's grace does not supplant a passion for excellence. So this is saying, add to your faith a passion for excellence in your walk. And then it goes on to say to supplement your virtue or your excellence, or your moral excellence, however you want to look at it, with knowledge. What kind of knowledge? If, if we think that there's any order to this list, which I do, I think that each of these build one on another, then it's the knowledge of where we derive our virtue from. A Christian who is striving for excellence and living a virtuous life, but is armed with a full utility and ability to use the gospel is powerful, is powerful in their walk. I think it's talking about, if you want to simplify it, just the knowledge of Jesus. And friends, as, as, as we prepare to close tonight, I want to ask you guys just a simple question. Would you say that as you've come here right now, that you know Jesus? I'm not even talking just in a salvific sense, although that, that might be important. Have you ever put your faith in Him for salvation? But do you know Jesus? 
And are you actively knowing Jesus? Or are you living off of past knowledge of Jesus? One of my favorite books, it's a book that, and no exaggeration, I've probably read at least a dozen times, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He talks about how he didn't get this promotion at this prestigious university that he wanted because he believed in things like the authority of Scripture and the deity of Christ and, you know, those silly things like people in this room believe in. And his friend was consoling him because he had worked in academia his whole life to be able to move towards that position. And he says, it's okay because in the end, I've known God and they haven't. I remember just being gripped by that, saying, do I know God so intimately that I would answer a question in such a way? It's okay because I know Him. I walk with Him. I have an intimate knowledge of Him. So, so take all the fancy stuff we've talked about. It's all worthless if we don't have that. Would you, as you have come here today on August 11th, would you say that you know Jesus and that you're actively knowing Jesus? That's what this is all about. And then it goes on to talk about supplementing your knowledge with self-control. How critical is it that knowledge be tempered with self-control? Has anyone here ever taken their knowledge on a topic and exercised it as an opportunity for a lack of self-control? Anyone? I don't know if people do that in New York. They do it in Jersey all the time. Um, And when you've studied hard for a subject and you know it, and you want them to know that you know it, and you even want them to know that you know it better than they know it, in my sinful nature, check this out, I don't even need to be an expert on the topic. I'll just, you know, if I know anything on it, sometimes I'll try to show you how much I know it. That's tempered with a lack of self-control. I remember when I was a 23-year-old guy going through Bible college, there's this problematic view known as open theism out there. Maybe some of you guys had heard of it. So I, I read an article about it, and I read a, a book where D.A. Carson said it was bad, so I was obviously an expert. Um, that was enough for me, you know. Because I'd read an article, and I'd read a book by somebody who didn't believe in it, I was now, at the age of 23, the world's foremost expert on open theism. So I went to a debate where one of the pioneers of this idea was actually lecturing, and they had an open forum, and they opened it up to Q&A afterwards. So I immediately started to grill this guy during the time. I stood up all 23 years and year and a half of Bible college in me because it didn't matter that he had done his Ph.D. dissertation on this. I was the expert in the room. So after he humbly listened to my question, he fires back with the retort in front of, I don't remember how many people, about a thousand. So have you ever actually read one of my books? Or did you just read an article and maybe like a D.A. Carson book about it? And right there I got a crash course on why we're supposed to add self-control to our knowledge. But I want to ask you guys this, because I can honestly tell you my life verse I was going to get you back for putting me on the spot and tell you to read my life verse. It's Proverbs 30, verse 1, man. Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I lack the understanding of a man. So uh, I, that's what I'm in authority in. But how hard is it for you guys that are actually experts 
in your fields. I've met some of you. There are people in this room that have given years and years of study where you are actually an expert in the field that you're in. So to that, I want to add a few things. First of all, self-control is not just a virtue. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So pray diligently that God will give you the grace to be humble and to temper your knowledge with self-control. Pray for that. It's a fruit of the Spirit. He wants to give you that. After all, it tells you that God gives grace to the humble and He's opposed to the proud, meaning that you're inviting God to fight against you if you're prideful with the knowledge that He's given you. And I'm sure whatever field you've studied, I've met some PhDs in here, I'm sure that you guys have gone to school forever. Whatever field you've studied in and worked that hard to be able to prepare for, I'm sure work is hard enough where you don't need the God of the universe fighting against you when you go to work. But that's what it means when it says that he's opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. And I would also add that with the tension between knowledge and self-control, I'd recommend that you spend a good amount of time in the parable of the banquet in Luke 14, where Jesus says, you know what, why don't you just take the low place and let another man elevate you? Don't go and take the highest place there and declare yourself to be chief among men. Go and take the low place and let the master of the house do that. A verse that I've just been trying to commit to memory lately, and I'm sure since I said that I'll butcher it, but in Proverbs 23, it says, let another man's lips praise you and not your own. There should be no instance where I need to tell you how excellent I am in order to ordain praise for myself. And lastly on this point, faith is a great way to temper your knowledge with self-control. I don't need to leave here with you thinking how brilliant I was. I'm not justified by what you think of me. You know what are some of the most beautiful words in the Bible? When Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to me, it's a very small thing in what you think of me. Or whether you examine me, or whether I'm examined by any other human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. That's like, boom, take that. Man, I wish I could just say that with confidence. Like, hey, I've done my best. I don't care what you think. Not a big deal. I know what Jesus thinks, and that's enough for me today. And then he says, add to your self-control steadfastness. And friends, this is particularly important when overcoming addictive behavior. And in a room this size, I'm sorry, I'm sure you guys are all upright and have moral fiber out the wazoo, but statistically, somebody in here is probably struggling with some addictions. You don't have a room this big where that's not the case. Addictive behavior is usually just ingrained repetitious behavior in sin. So self-control in itself is not enough. There needs to be steadfastness added to that self-control. Like it says right here, being resolved by God's power working in you, not by might or by power, but by His Spirit, His power working in you, that whom the Son has set free shall be free indeed and being resolved to that fact that no temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man, and when tempted, he will provide a way out. 
And this is again where faith is critical in the development of character. Because to overcome addiction, I need to be steadfast in the areas where I need self-control. And I need to have faith that Jesus is honestly enough. I need to trust that I don't need to go back to the crutch because whatever it is, Jesus is enough. For me, my crutch for years was prescription painkillers. And I would just use them like crazy to anesthetize myself because I didn't like the way I felt inside. I didn't like this person. I always measured my insides by your outsides and I didn't measure up to what I saw. So overcoming that, meant being steadfast in the belief that I don't need to numb myself because Jesus is enough for whatever my perceived deficiency is. Whatever that thing is that I don't feel enough, Jesus is the enoughness for that. Jesus is enough for the area that you feel insecure in. Jesus is enough in the area where you feel really weak and you need to reach out for a crutch. And this is where speaking the gospel into things becomes really practical. That's what Peter did with this same group of guys in 1 Peter. He's telling these group of people that are about to tap out of the faith. He's saying, remain steadfast. And his encouragement was really just the gospel. He says, don't give up. You have an inheritance laid up for you that's imperishable and undefiled and ready to be revealed in the last day. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And in this you greatly rejoice, a joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith, salvation of your souls. All he does is say, stay, be steadfast, because the gospel has secured that there's something beautiful awaiting you. And then he goes on to say, supplement your steadfastness with godliness. One of my heroes in the church planting world has once said that one of the dirty little secrets of church planting is that the men who are most resilient and relentless, synonyms for steadfastness, are also some of the most arrogant and self-reliant. Again, back to my previous message about why faith is critical in the development of all of these issues. Godliness is a God dependency, whereas steadfastness that doesn't come from the gospel can produce faith in self and self-dependency, and that's not what he's talking about here. So Peter's exhorting them to add to their steadfastness a God-dependency, a true belief that when somebody comes up to you and compliments that thing in you to which you want to take some kind of pride for, you say, it wasn't me, man. It was really all God. And you're able to say it without being phony because God has developed a deep God dependency deep within your heart. Then he goes on to say, supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. We only have two more and then we're wrapping up. But if I had to pick a favorite one in my progression, this is it, man. And maybe it's just because I was a hippie for so long before I got saved. I mean, I'm talking like full-on living in a Volkswagen bus and like selling grilled cheeses for money and veggie burritos and I was a vegan for fun. Like hippie, hippie, hippie. So people were just really nice. That's what I was used to. So I really have a hard time with people that are perceived as godly. Remember, he's saying, add to your godliness, brotherly affection. I have a real hard time with people that are perceived as godly, but lack brotherly affection, or just to put it bluntly, I have a hard time with people that act like they're godly and they're jerks. I really struggle with that. That really just sticks in my craw. Honestly, this is one of the areas that kills the church's witness more than any, 
non-Christians want to know, why do people that claim to be godly lack so much brotherly affection? I promise you, I talk to non-Christians regularly. If you talk to them, they'll ask you that question. I think some of the fights that are going on right now in media and social media is a result that we forgot to add brotherly kindness to our godliness. We want to make sure that we're maintaining the godliness in the face of affliction, but we forgot that it's supposed to be tempered and added to with brotherly kindness. And it's critical that he ends this list with brotherly affection, and then he says to add to that love. I have met many along the way that have developed a lot of these characteristics and have never developed brotherly affection or love. And that's not what Christianity is supposed to look like. I just want to take a second and ask your guys' heart as we prepare to wrap up, how's your love doing? I mean, really, how deep have you been going in the area of love? Maybe it's just because I I tasted non-loving Christianity and I didn't like it, but I love the harshness of the admonishment in the next verse. It says, without love, that it renders you fruitless and ineffective. Look at verse 9. He says, forever lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he's blind, and he's forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Back to verse 8. For these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without love, you're ineffective. You're, you're in clanging gong, as he puts it, someplace else. Because that's not gospel Christianity. It's curmudgeon churchianity. And I promise you, that's, that's something altogether different. And the two do not reflect each other. So this passage really ends with two practical questions. In verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you, are these qualities yours? That's the conclusion he comes to, right? That's not me exegeting something brilliant. He looks at the list and says, are these qualities yours? And then the second question is, are these qualities increasing? And you're supposed to examine yourself over and over. You see this, examine yourself. Make sure, test yourself with these things. And perhaps tonight or tomorrow is a call for some weeding that needs to be done. I just want to encourage you that weeding is not the same thing as starting over. Uh, I I think that 12-step abstinence model has really busted up our thinking in this area because we think that when we've messed over, when we've messed up, we start again from that mess up and now our abstinence state from that sin starts from the point of when we messed up last. That's not gospel Christianity. Man, you're going to be constantly weeding and picking dandelions until the day that Jesus takes you home. And if you belong to Jesus, I just want to encourage you that you stand on equal standing according to verse 1, even if you have some weeding to do. So let me pray for you guys and uh, let you guys go on your way. Jesus, thank you so much for um, the fact that Jesus paid it all. God, I I pray that people would um, be introspective in so much as it's healthy. Lord, I pray that you'd guard people from that unhealthy introspection, which... um, just looks at themselves and forgets to look back at the cross. And Jesus, I pray that if people have weeding to do, that you and your mercy 
and by the power of your spirit would do that weeding. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for letting me share with you. Amen.